0: Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Psalm 110, a Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, the lord is at your right hand he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath he will execute judgment among the nations filling them with corpses he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth he will drink from the brook by the way therefore he will lift up his head this is the word of the lord oh the grass withers and the flower fades
1: All right, I had uh, stepped out to get a snack real quick. I got hungry and I walked back in and one of our elders was offering life insurance. Uh, (laughs) I wonder what had happened there. Um, And then we're talking about corpses and stuff. Anyway, this is not a coordinated plan, Uh, but I do have something I'd like to tell you. No, I'm kidding. Uh, All right, kids, uh, elevate uh, if you'd like to head out. Just elevate today. We do have EGC, okay? Uh, EGC is grades third, three, four, and five. We'll be over here in the office. And wow, I know. I feel like we should just take a nap. I'm not. We're not gonna. Or well, hopefully we're not gonna. Maybe some of you will. Um. All right. Uh, so. Um, when so it, when our kids, when our older two kids were younger, like preschool age, it's been a while. We took a trip back down to Fort Worth, Texas, where I went to seminary, and uh, that's a good like ten-hour drive from St. Louis, and it's not it's not tremendously exciting. Um, sorry, anybody from Oklahoma, uh, but uh, so we, we were driving down there, and um, we had we had purchased. Uh, a a brand new Honda Odyssey. Like, this was our, like, probably ill-advised financially, but we thought we're gonna drive this thing until, you know, into the ground. And we did. Um, And it included one of those, like, awesome, high-tech, state-of-the-art, eight-inch drop-down screens with the DVD player, right? It's amazing to me how dated that technology is. (laughs) When we, we bought it, actually, this is a totally side note, we bought it, and then New Year's Eve was a few days after I got, we, it was a Christmas thing for my wife. Anyway, and like New Year's Eve, we went out and sat in our van and watched a movie, and we're like, this is the height of luxury. How could the world possibly improve from this moment? <clears throat> anyway, on our way down, that has nothing to do with anything. On our way down uh, to Texas, our kids, um, it was Finding Nemo. Like, over every second they were awake, that's what they wanted to watch, was Finding Nemo. Which is fine. I, I like I liked the movie. But, like, I had that movie memorized um, before I ever saw it. And uh, and, and it was, uh, yeah, it was great. Um, but I love I love the end of that movie. Not not the end where, and I'm sorry, this is a spoiler, but uh, not the end where, where Nemo is rescued and then all of the life lessons that he learns in the fish tank he's able to apply and then free Dory from the net right the swim down together uh, and and that which I love that part too um, but the very end in where the the escape plan that the the fish in the in the uh, tank uh, have launched and they they get in the bags and they go across the table out the window across the street and into the harbor Right, and they're all sitting there, and they're celebrating, and looking each other in the face. It's like this is awesome, and then the blowfish goes, "Now what?" <laughs> As they're in the harbor in their bags, um, and so uh, incidentally, a month after the trip, again, this has nothing to do with anything. We got a flat tire in our van, and and pulling up the uh, the cover for where the where the tire was, where the spare tire was, I see these two bags. Uh, that have brand spankin new wireless headphones that they never told me about. So, if you're, yeah, um, this morning we're going to kind of look at a bit of the now what, uh, right? we we talked about We talked about the resurrection of Jesus. He rose from the grave. Check. Amazing and and awe-inspiring and wonderful. He appeared to the women at the tomb. He appeared to the disciples. He appeared to over 500 people. Historically verifiable. The way the eyewitnesses and the very existence of Christianity, you have to ignore a whole lot of history to do away with the physical resurrection of Jesus, which don't underestimate our ability to ignore a whole lot of history. as Even in reading about this, stumbling across, we're not too far removed from when Kanye West gave a quick shout out to this new and upcoming guy, Paul McCartney, and and all of Kanye, all of Yeezy's fans were like, this Paul McCartney guy is is pretty good. I'm glad that they, and now probably we need a lesson on who Kanye Well, probably not, but uh, that'd be complicated. Um, But it's, so don't underestimate our ability to ignore history, but we we have this amazing history of the resurrection, uh, which is true, and... um, the question that that can kind of leave us with is okay, then, then what happens? We have the hope of the resurrection, but, but now what? Now what do we do? Uh, and so we have a lot to cover this morning, but the Creed gives us the aftermath of what takes place after the resurrection um, and also why it's important. So this morning we're going to be covering in the Creed I believe that he ascended into heaven, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that He will come again to judge the living and the dead. All right, everybody good with that? Cool. And if you're not, I'm not sure what we would do. Um, so we're going to start with the text. Uh, and you might ask, you might, you, you might be a little inquisitive and go, "Okay, uh, the scripture that we read this morning was from Psalms. Psalms is in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament." And now you're going to talk about what happens after the resurrection. How are you going to talk about what happens after the resurrection from the Hebrew Scriptures? That's a great question. And the way I want to encourage you with that is to know uh, that the Hebrew Scriptures, this is also what they point to as the grand story. It is the grand story that they tell now. This is all part of the same story. Uh, And the New Testament actually quotes Psalm 110, no fewer than... 27 times, alludes to this psalm. Uh, So it's well covered. And this is the theology of the reign of Christ, and it's pretty well represented. So we're going to start with the text. In Psalm 110, verse 1 says this, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Um, This is a psalm of King David. And what he is doing is he's revealing the word of Yahweh. Yahweh was the personal, uh, intimate name of, of God. So if you were to come to me and say, and, and call me Trey. If you were to call me Mr. Herwick, I would look for my dad. If you call me Trey, that is my personal name. But I don't count because I'm not God, right? If you walk up to somebody who's important and you, you have this insight. You can call them by their first name. God gives Moses his first name, Yahweh. The proper name of God of Israel. Revealed to Moses in the burning bush. Yahweh is speaking, says to my Lord, this is the, the, the one that David calls Lord, even as king, to Adonai. Adonai was long understood to be the son of David, the king who would come, right? Uh, the... the or as we call the Messiah. And what Jesus reveals in the gospel is that this is him. Matthew 22 and Mark 12, he is the son of David. So he is the subject of this conversation. So if we could say this, that God the Father says to Jesus, now here's the thing, I'm going to try to cover this already. Um, we believe in the Trinity, so these are three in one. And if you hear me this morning and go, that's heretical, please don't hear me and say it's heretical. The Trinity is, a mysteri- uh, is, is uh, mysterious, and we don't fully comprehend it. Uh, just, know, just know that I'm not doing heresy. <laughs> is that? <laughs> I'd love to see another pastor start their sermon off with that one. Um, all right, if you have questions you want to talk about that afterwards, we, we can, maybe. Um, But you're talking to a guy who spent an hour and a half trying to explain to a third grader one time about the Trinity, and really what he wanted to know is, could the Holy Spirit do more tricks than Jesus? Um, That's what seminary does to you. All right. Mark, at the end of his gospel, talks about how Jesus uh, ascended to this position. Jesus reveals in the gospel that he is, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Mark tells us that Jesus, after his resurrection, ascended to this position. Uh, Peter, in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, talks about Jesus being exalted to this position, to sit at the right hand of the throne of God. When we say, I believe that Jesus ascended into heaven, I'm going to give you something that may or may not be helpful. This does not necessarily mean that Jesus, like, floated up into the sky. Heaven is not necessarily, we're not necessarily talking geographical, and the reason I say this, um, it may not be anything. We, we talk about the heavens, right? We talk about the skies. Uh, but really what heaven is, is the dwelling place of God. Uh, and the, uh, the only reason I, I even bring this up is uh, Yuri Gagarin, not because of him, but he was a Russian cosmonaut. He walked in space and he actually never made this quote, but Khrushchev actually attributed it to him, which is, was not true. But he did it at a key time, where he talked about walking on in the on the moon, and there was no God. I do not see a God up here. Heaven is not a geographical location as much as it is a spiritual realm. It is the dwelling place of God. In the Hebrew Scriptures, where was the dwelling place of God? That's a, that was a question. In the Hebrew Scriptures, where was the dwelling place of God? In the temple, in the tabernacle, that was where God dwelled. Heaven is the realm wherever that might be, whenever that might be. You really want to blow your mind. uh, It's an eternal realm where God dwells. And so when we say Jesus ascended, it may not be necessarily like he ascended up into the skies, but he ascended to this position as sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And the main point here is that Christ is exalted in his authority so if you remember, we talked about the creation account. Uh, a lot of this is going to feel, some of this is going to feel like a lecture, and, and then, but um, I promise you, I hope it will be worth it. Um, not all of this is going to be on the test, all right? Just so you know, uh, but it could, it should be helpful. Uh, in the Old Testament, we talked about the creation account being uh, like an ancient uh, account of God building a temple, of a temple being built, and then on day seven, when God sits and rests. That is the vision of a king having built his temple, sitting down and resting on his throne and beginning his reign. Here, Jesus is exalted having completed the task that God had given him to do that he willfully did, lived perfectly, died a brutal death, and then rose again. Christ is now exalted in his authority. Seated at the right hand of the Father to begin his rule and reign over all the earth. So this is not necessarily talking geographically but positionally. Jesus has taken his place at the right hand of the throne of God. Charles Spurgeon says this, His work is done and he may sit. It is well done and he may sit at his right hand. It will have grand results and, may there, and he may therefore quietly wait to see the complete victory which is certain to follow. And so when we talk here about Christ as king, this is who we're talking about. Jesus ascended, resurrected in his resurrected form, sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all the earth. And really, um, it's kind of just hit me this week during sermon prep, the whole rest of the creed is kind of like, okay, so then how does everything else function in that, in that realm, in the reign of, of Christ as king? The Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, we'll talk more about that next week. Um, what, what is his role in, in light of the reign of Christ? What do we do as the community, as the communion of, uh, of the saints, the gathering of saints in the church and the community of believers how do we now operate, and what does it look like to have this resurrected life that we will enjoy eternally in the forgiveness of sins? All that takes place under the reign of Christ is pretty much what else happens to follow. So, what does the reign of Christ look like? Uh, Psalm one ten, chapter uh, verse two. He says this: The Lord, so this is Yahweh, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your, mouth, of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You, talking about Jesus, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Um. <clears throat> In the original creation of God's people, Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram. And if you remember, the original Great Commission, God says to Abram, I will make you a people, I will will make from you a people, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. The original design of God's people was to be a blessing to all the nations. It was the way God worked in and through them to all the nations. Here, Jesus, the Messiah, is not just king over Israel. He is king over the whole earth, over all nations. Now, we may look at that and go, oh, yeah, duh. And when we say God, we're all talking about the same God. That is is very much a contemporary view. In the ancient world, you most assuredly were not talking about the same God. Your God was your God, and their God was their God. And your God and your people's God would go to war with their people and their God. And if your God was more powerful, you would win. And if you lost, your God wasn't more powerful. And then you go back in repentance and offering and sacrifices. And if it was really bad, then you'd be like, well, we just need to switch and go to that God. Israel's God, and then what we see revealed in the Messiah, is that he is king over all the earth. Jew and Gentile, slave and free. Male and female, cub fan and cardinal fan. He is king over all of the universe. And the scepter that goes out from Zion, ruling over the enemies, the uh, scepter is, is like a sword. And Hebrews tells us the word of the Lord is sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and of spirit, and of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The rule of the Messiah, the, the, the sword that goes forth from him, is not one that brings violence. It is one uh, that brings discerning judgment. And we'll get to judgment. If judgment's a bad word in your mind, hang on. Uh, it is a scepter that brings discerning judgment. Rightly divides our loyalties. It convicts of sin. It is the, it is the root of the gospel, the hope that goes with that scepter for those who see their need of a rescuer and a savior. It is the conviction of sin and the revelation of there is one who has come, who will forgive and who will reconcile you. And then verse 3 talks about the soldiers of King Jesus. And this is not, again, a soldier of violence. These are a people who willingly volunteer and offer themselves freely to his service. Arrayed not with swords, but with good news with holiness that is radiant, a fresh relief like the beginning of a new day, and youthful vigor of the morning dew. The people of God who serve, those who are followers of Jesus, we're not coerced, we're not forced or manipulated. We delight in the goodness of our King. And their call to the nations ultimately is to proclaim and demonstrate the goodness of their king. In other words, our job is not to coerce or force or manipulate people into this kingdom. Our job is to bear witness to this good and glorious king. That's what we do. That's the scepter that goes forth and we do this through word and we do this through deed that we have found the one to rescue our souls and it says God's people are dressed in holiness and I always feel the need that, to explain holiness this may just be me but it's okay Oftentimes when I hear holiness I, I hear this like upright and formal and like we are holy we do not talk in class type of like thing uh, holiness means to be set apart and holiness is not just a list of behaviors that we do and don't do. That's not the, that is not what first holiness is. Holiness is, is a people whose affection, the greatest commandment that we have, Jesus summarizes it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What sets a follower of Jesus apart is not first their patterns of behavior, but it is their affections who they love most, where their worship is devoted, who they are in awe of. Now, will that affect our behavior? It should. It should. This is actually kind of some of the ramifications. When, we, when our affections are laid most at God's feet, then, then we have the law of how to live that out, where we're not coveting our neighbor's stuff, and we're not Uh, we're we're not filled with envy and we don't practice deceit because we don't have to lie, we're fully known. um, All of the commandments that are given. So yeah, our behavior will be changed. And what this does is the appearance of a people who have received a new day, a fresh vigor. Sometimes in our, we talked a little bit about this at the Menger Tree. what, 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 what should Christians be known for? You know, if we're, we're, when we're fighting culture wars and political battles and all this kind of stuff, we're like, well, well, what are Christians supposed to stand up for? Here's what Christians should be known for. They should be a people who seem to have been radically forgiven. That should be what we're known for. That should be our top. Should we be a moral and upright people? If, if it, yeah, but, but more than that, we should be a people that were like, I don't know how, but somehow I've been reconciled to God. And then, this is, this is, our, this is our, we're going to get a little more technical, and then I promise we're going we're gonna to round this in here. The, the finish of this, God's promise is that the Messiah will be a priest for, uh, in, forever in the order of Melchizedek. Um, the story of Melchizedek is a very, it's a seemingly just random obscure story in, in Genesis 14. He only appears one time. and, and here's, here's, here's the bone for all the Lord of the Rings fans. Yes, this is the Tom Bombadil of Scripture. He who has ears, let them hear. Um, there's some kind of glorious meaning here. He's the king of Salem. Uh, and when Abram and Lot are delivered from Sodom, Melchizedek comes out to meet them and he blesses Abram, uh, and he is a priest of the Most High God. Now essentially, as I understand it, all right, I'm not making any promises, and again, this won't be on the final. Um, as I understand it, all other priests in Israel's history are linked uh, to the temple and fall under the order of Aaron. The descendants of Aaron, as high priests, offer sacrifices in the tabernacle uh, and the temple, eventually on behalf of the sins of Israel. The order of Melchizedek is not tied to the temple, but is tied directly with Yahweh himself. So, here again, somehow Melchizedek is impervious to the ring's power. Right? Okay. Um, All right. Making sure, yeah. Somehow Melchizedek's order is pure and holy and eternal. Not like the stained offering of other priests. Hebrews references Melchizedek five times. One commentator puts it this way, his priesthood is not like that of Aaron, figurative, successive, and transient, but it is real and effectual, fixed, and incommunicable, eternal, and unchangeable. And so you may ask, okay, but why do I need to know that? What does that matter? And I'm really glad you asked. Here's why this matters. Because the reign of Christ is not just Christ as king. It is Christ as king, but we've seen bad kings. What is the character of this king? How do we know if he's good? How do we know what that, what that does for us? Are we all just fall in line under this king? How do we know? He's not only the reign as king, but he is also reigning as the perfect and holy and right high priest. And do you know what high priests do? High priests advocate and plead on behalf of the sins of the people before God. We have an eternal king reigning over the earth who simultaneously goes before the judge and pleads on our behalf for eternity. Who bears our sin before the judge forever and ever and ever. He is our perfect advocate. And so, and, I, and Eric and I did not plan this out at all, but it was beautiful, and this seems to happen more often than I'd like. Well, no, it seems to happen ex- exactly as often as I'd like. Let's say it that way. Um, but this is, this is, I don't want these lyrics to ever fall on your ears the same way. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect Plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Who ever, always, forever without end lives and pleads for me. And so you may go, okay, but how do I know? How do I know that he does this? How do I know I'm included? Here's how. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, which is always and forever without change, no tongue, no condemnation, no voice of of, uh, despair can bid me thence depart. I believe that he ascended into heaven He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is ruling and reigning as king and as our great high priest. And then lastly, I believe that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore, he will lift up his head. All right. This is going to be a lot more boring than this passage. I promise that. This passage seems to point forward to a battle, a final battle uh, between God and his enemies. God's initial promise, and his promise over and over and over again to the people of Israel is You trust in me, I fight the battles. You trust in me. I fight the battles. And This is why we talk about when we look to other things for hope, it's like making a treaty with Egypt. We trust in him. He fights the battles. I want to assure you, I want to promise you beyond all of anything else, the most, second most certain thing you can take home today. I have no idea how this is going to take place. All right? I don't have flannel graphs to fill the back here. I'm not going to tell you the signs of the end of the age. I don't know any of that. Okay? I don't know who the corpses will be. Two things that I do know that I think this makes certain. First, God wins. Second, the battle is His. Not ours. Our battle has been won. Our fight is faithfulness and trust his fight is with his enemies one commentator put it this way which I loved it is better to sit at the side of the king than to be under his foot and I thought that sounded pretty good our battle is to remain faithful Jesus will come again in judgment in ancient days, you need to know this. In ancient days, judgment was never seen as a bad thing. I don't know if it's a bad thing in our day or not. I know it was for a while, but I mean, we all practice it pretty freely. So maybe we're all like, all right, let's just do away with saying judgment is bad and just practice it freely. And who are we going to judge? This side or this side? And um, so, I, so I don't know. Uh, but in, the, in, in, in ancient days, judgment wasn't bad. Judgment was a declaration. Judgment meant victory. Judgment was seen as a good thing. Um, What we see here is that the final judgment of God will... I'm going to say this in the negative first, and then I'm going to say it in the positive. Because Christ is at the right hand of the Father, the final judgment will not... uh, uh, Hold on. Okay. It falls not without the grace and mercy of Jesus. Does that make sense? The final judgment comes through the lens of the gracious and merciful Messiah who is ever living and pleading on behalf of sinful people. I think that's good news. And one of the greatest events in history, this is one of the greatest freedoms you will ever experience. You and I are relieved from sitting in that position. You and I are relieved totally from sitting in the position of great high priest and of great judge. Praise be to his glorious grace. We're not the judge of the universe, Jesus is. We can love, we can serve, we can forgive, we can warn, we can help, we can do all those things, but we are freed from having to be the judge of the universe. Of discerning a heart that we simply cannot discern even though I feel often particularly gifted in this area. Jesus is the best possible judge we could ever hope for. He knows the heart. He can discern the motives of people, and we can't. He knows what's going on. He knows backgrounds. He knows baggage. He knows hurts and wounds. He knows the motive behind why we do what we do. He will not be fooled, and he operates with grace and mercy. And yet... He will not let wickedness go unpunished. Um, Right off the bat, what we see is the scepter of the Lord goes out and discerns and knows the heart. We can't judge the heart. He does it perfectly. Jesus does give us some insight into how to practice a a lesser, a lowercase j, judgment. We are not, we are freed from making the final judgment. Um, In Matthew chapter 7, he says... Judge not, lest you be judged, right? Uh, And he also says, with the judgment you use, it will be used against you, which is a good cautionary warning. Be careful when we judge. And then he goes in and he tells this illustration. Why do we go around and we see the speck in everybody else's eye, but we ignore the plank in our own eye, right? You remember this story? And so you've got this image there of Jesus like walking around with this huge branch and saying, you guys are focused on the speck in this person's eye, and like you have this huge branch in your own eye and why why are you so focused on everybody else sometimes we are very 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 gifted uh, at seeing what's wrong with everybody else the warning there how do you judge others carefully with compassion you don't want the same I don't want the same judgment that I use on let's just say drivers I don't want the same judgment I use on other drivers to be measured against me. I want the officer to know that I was in a hurry because of some other external circumstance. I had other motives. Have, have you ever had something stuck in your eye? Um, it, like there's very few things that just stop everything and you, you gotta like stop and it's so frustrating, and it's so painful, how would you want somebody to help you with that? Would you want somebody to come in and go, you know, you probably should just stop getting stuff stuck in your eye? (laughs) Would you want somebody to come in guns blazing? "Ah, You know, no. Gentle, humble. When we deal with our own junk first, we are humbled in light of Christ's judgment to go, okay, I get it. I can't stand in judgment of anybody. I can warn, I can give grace and mercy. When we deal with our own junk, it should humble us, it should make us gentle, it should make us quick to identify. I know, I've had stuff stuck in my eye too. Have you ever, like when somebody gets hurt and you kind of feel that pain? Like when somebody's got stuff in their eye and your eye starts to water a little bit and you're kind of identifying with that pain? But it also calls us to action. I don't want you to live with that in your eye. Can I help you? And do it gently. I wanna say this, I think there's a misunderstanding of the grace of Jesus in the life of a Christian, especially in our day. The more I contemplate the grace and mercy of Jesus, it has never, ever, ever compelled me to hate somebody that I otherwise would have loved, ever. If anything, it compels me to care about people that I otherwise probably wouldn't. I had to sit with a college student going off on me one time Like going off and telling me I was being judgmental. And I actually told him, in love, the only reason I'm sitting down with you is because the gospel of Jesus compels me to. I know, it's not strong opening testimony there. Otherwise, I really wouldn't care. But I am compelled to love you and care about you. It has never caused me to hate somebody that I otherwise would have loved. Landing the plane here, I'm I'm not really sure. When we talk about the judgment, when we talk about the reign of Christ, does it bring up fear in our heart? Does it bring up worry? Does it bring up concern? And I don't know what illustration would be uh, of the most comfort or the most challenge. The the challenge of the pastor every week is to, to both comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable right that's kind of the thing and if we were sitting down like individually and we were talking and i could see that you were racked with guilt and shame and all of these things then i would it would be much more gentle uh, or if i saw that you were just like yeah those people are the problem and these people and we need to own the libs and we need to condemn the black lives matter and we need to all then i'd be like cool all right let's talk about some judgment here and and you know that it would apply us and bring us low but we're not sitting down individually uh, it'd be easier. Um, but here's what I see over and over again in Scripture. And this is what I have to go with my, in my own heart. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The prideful, whether through religious or irreligious means, declare over and over again. Maybe not necessarily with lips, but, but certainly with the heart. What the prideful declare over and over again is, I have no need of a Savior. I am good enough. I will stand as my own defense. I'm confident in my own goodness. And oftentimes this comes with our judgment of others. When I survey the landscape, I'm pretty certain that I fall in the upper crest of that. We talked about this a little bit in the men's retreat, breaking the world down into the good people versus the bad people and presuming ourselves always on the side of the good. And then we have to reshape God as the God who... Sends the good people to heaven and the bad people to hell. So we just rewrite everything. This is the prideful, whether it's through religious means or irreligious means. But those who are humbled by their sin or by their oppression, those who cry out for a rescuer, God is the lifter of heads. Not simply just that we give lip service to a doctrine or belief, but the posture of our heart those who know that our only hope is for someone to be perfect on our behalf, to intercede for us, to go before the judge of all the universe who knows and discerns our very hearts that we can't stand there on our own merit and we're going to need the cosmos' greatest defense attorney to somehow get us off the hook. For those who are in this position, boy, do I have good news for you. Victory is sealed. It's completed. We have an everlasting reigning king. We have a great high priest. We freely serve an eternal kingdom that will never be thwarted, can never be voted in or out, never overthrown or undone. Even in the midst of confusion or despair, We are assured that the darkness will not win. And what this produces in us is both a great humility that I am not the king and I am not the great high priest, but also a great confidence. Victory is certain. So, tonight we're going to celebrate as a church um, that sin and death Do not have the final say. Tonight, we're going to get a foretaste of the celebration to come. Scripture paints this final scene, this final victory, like a wedding feast, which wedding celebrations are good in our day, and this is what the resurrection party is modeled after a a wedding uh, reception, but they ain't seven-day-long celebrations like they were in ancient times. Uh, and it's, it's just this picture, the final, um, the final uh, scene is this victory like a wedding feast where everyone from the town joins in the celebration and the worries of the current world fall silent under the joyful music and dancing and laughter. The scene here in Psalm 110 is actually really powerful. Verse 7 says this, He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Um, some commentators have tried to paint this like Jesus drinking the cup of suffering. But that does away with the context, I think, of Psalm 110. I don't think this is Jesus drinking the cup of suffering. I think this is a king marching to the battle that is so done, that is so already over, that is so already victorious, that he takes time to stop by the cool water's flow dip his hand in, grab a drink of refreshing water, and even take time to survey the beauty around him. That is how confident he is that the victory is done. It is sealed. And this is our good and gracious king. He's not rushed. He's not worried that this battle going to get away from him. He's not up 28-3 in the fourth quarter and worried that the Patriots are going to come back. Tom Brady is no match for our good game. The practice this week is to celebrate. If you make it tonight, that's great. We're going to dance, hopefully outside, get your praying shoes on. Um... Uh, we're, we're going to celebrate. We're going to have a good time. Uh, we're going to listen to loud music and dance and get silly and let kids go nuts, and it's going to be great. Uh, hopefully not break anything, but whatever. Um, and if you, don't fi- if you don't make it tonight, that's okay. Um, find a time this week to open the shades, let sunshine in, turn up the radio, and just lose it. Sing loud. I don't know, hopefully you know this, I don't ever advocate for us to pretend that the sorrows of this world don't exist. But there are times, especially in light of the resurrection, especially in light of our resurrected king sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, ruling and reigning as the high priest over all of eternity, that there are times, especially in the season of Eastertide, where we push through the darkness and just dance to celebrate the joy of our salvation and lift our glasses high. Our king is on his throne and of his kingdom there will be no end. Let's pray. Jesus, I am so grateful that my confidence is not in me And God forbid and forgive me every time I try to make it in me, either my confidence or my failure. We kneel before a risen king who will rule and reign forever and ever. This world will be made new. We one day will be made new. And I pray that today in this season, this first week of tide, that we are able to lift up our heads and rejoice at our King who is living and ruling and reigning. May we learn how to operate under that. May we practice that. May we practice our future citizenship. May we act as a people who have been radically forgiven and filled with grace enough to offer it to a hungry and thirsty world and allow you to fight the battles. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.